Chapter Thirty Seven of the Scalp Hunters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan. The Scalp Hunters by Thomas Maine Reed. Chapter Thirty Seven. The Night Ambuscade. A short hour passes. The bright orb sinks behind us, and the quartz rocks sadden into a somber hue. The straggling rays of twilight hover but a moment over the chalky cliffs, and then vanish away. It's night. Descending the hills in a long string, we arrive upon the plain. We turn to the left and keep round the mountain foot. The rocks guide us. We proceed with caution, exchange words only in whispers. We crawl around among the loose boulders that have fallen from above. We turn many spurs that shoot out into the plain. Occasionally we halt and hold council. After a journey of ten or twelve miles, we find ourselves opposite the Indian town. We are not over a mile from it. We can see the fires burning on the plain and hear the voices of those who move around them. At this point the band is divided small party remains its cache in a defile among the rocks. These guard the captive chief and the anaho of the mules. The rest move forward, guided by Ruby, who carries them around the edge of the forest, here and there dropping a picket of several men as he proceeds. These parties conceal themselves at their respective stations, remain silent, and wait from the signal for the bugle, which is to be given at the hour of daybreak. The night passes slowly and silently. The fires, one by one, go out, until the plain is wrapped in the gloom of a moonless night. Dark clouds travel over the sky, portending rain, a rare phenomenon in these regions. The swan utters its wild night. The guruya whoops over the stream, and the wolf howls upon the skirts of the sleeping village. The voices of the bull-bat wail through the air. You hear the flap flap of his long wings as he dashes down among the cocayos. You hear the hoof stroke on the hard plain, the crop of the browsing steed, and the twinkling of the bit ring, for the horses eat bridle. At intervals a drowsy hunter mutters through his sleep, battling in dreams with some terrible foe. Thus goes the night, these words voices. They cease as daybreak approaches. The wolf howls no longer. The swan and the blue crane are silent. The nighthawk has filled his ravenous maw and perches on the mountain pine. The fireflies disappear, chased by the colder hours, and the horses, having eaten what grew within their reach, stand in lounging attitudes to sleep. A gray light begins to steal into the valley. It flickers along the white cliffs of the quartz mountains. It brings with it a raw cold air that awakens the hunters. One by one they arouse themselves. They shiver as they stand up and carry their blankets wrapped around their shoulders. They feel weary and look pale and haggard. The gray dawn lands a ghastly hue to their dusty beards and unwashed faces. After a short while they coil up their trail ropes and fasten them to the rings. They look to their flints and priming and tighten buckles on their belts. They draw forth from the haversacks pieces of dry tahasso, eating it raw. They stand by their horses, ready to mount. It's not time yet. 
Light is gathering into the valley. The blue mist that hung over the river during the night is rising upward. We can see the town. We can trace the odd outline of the houses. What strange structures they are. Some of them are higher than others. One, two, four stories in height. They are each in form like a pyramid without its apex. Each upper story is smaller than that below it, the roofs of the lower ones serving as terraces for those above. They are of whitish-yellow, the color of the clay of which they are built. They are without windows, but doors lead into each story from the outside, and ladders stretch from terrace to terrace, leaning against the walls. On the tops of some there are poles carrying bannerets. These are the residents of the principal war chief and the great warriors of the nation. We can see the temple distinctly. It is like the houses in shape, but higher and of a larger dimension. There is a tall shaft rising out of its roof and a banner with a strange device floating at its peak. Near the houses we see corrals filled with mules and mustangs, the livestock of the village. The light grows stronger, forms appear upon the roofs and move along the terraces. They are human forms, enveloped in hanging garments, robe-like and striped. We recognize the Navajo blanket, with its altering bands of black and white. With the glass we can see these forms more distinctly. We can tell they are sick. Their hair hangs loosely upon their shoulders and far down their backs. Most of them are females, girls and women. There are many children, too. Then there are men, white-haired and old. A few other men appear, but they are not warriors. The warriors are absent. They come down the ladders, descending from terrace to terrace. They go out upon the plain and rekindle the fires. Some carry earthen vessels, olas, upon their heads and pass down to the river. They go in for water. These are nearly naked. We can see their brown bodies and uncovered breasts. They're slaves. See, the old men are climbing to the top of the temple. They are followed by women and children, some in white, others in bright-colored costumes. These are girls and young lads, the children of the chiefs. Over a hundred have climbed up. They have reached the highest roof. There is an altar near the staff. A smoke rolls up ablaze. They have kindled the fire upon the altar. Listen, a chant of voices and the beat of an Indian drum. The sound ceases, and they all stand motionless and apparently silent, facing to the east. What does it mean? They are waiting for the sun to appear. These people worship him. The hunters, interested and curious, strain their eyes, watching the ceremony. The top pinnacle of the quartz mountain is on fire. It is the first flash of the sun. The peak is yellowing downward. Other points catch the brilliant beams. They obstruct the faces of the devotees. See, there are white faces. One, two, many white faces, both of women and girls. Oh, God grant that it may be, cries Sanguine, hurriedly putting up the glass and raising the bugle to his lips. A few wild notes peal over the valley. The horsemen hear the signal. They debouch from the woods and defiles of the mountains. They gallop over the plain, deploying as they go. In a few minutes we have formed an arc of a circle, concave to the town. Our horses' heads are turned inward, and we ride forward, closing upon the walls. We have left the Ataho in defile, the captive chief, too, guarded by a few of the men. 
The notes of the bugles have summoned the attention of the inhabitants. They stand for a while in amazement and without motion. They behold the deploying of the line. They see the horsemen riding inward. Could it be a mock surprise of some friendly tribe? No, that strange voice, the bugle, is new to Indian ears, yet some of them have heard it before. They know it to be the war trumpet of the pale faces. For a while their consternation hinders them from action. They stand looking on until we are near. Then they behold pale faces, strange armor, and horses singularly caparisoned. It is the white enemy. They run from point to point, from street to street. Those who carry water dash down their olas and run screaming to their houses. They climb to the roof, drawing the ladders after them. Shouts are exchanged and exclamations uttered in the voices of men, women, and children. Terror is on every face. Terror displays itself in every movement. Meanwhile, our line has approached until we are within two hundred yards of the wall. We halt for a moment. Twenty men are left as an outer guard. The rest of us, thrown into a body, ride forward, following our leader. End of chapter 37 Recording by Kenneth Sergeant Gagan